to be back on the mic and back on the mic with bro hey, hey bro hey. <laughs> how are you today well i'm great and i'm great because you just made a really bold quote i think from your friend james about the context of today's recording what did you share? James Altcher. He was an incredible writer that I followed a lot in my early career. And in his writing, he said, if you're going to write something, leave blood on the page. If you're going to share a story from the stage, allow it to show your humanity. And what I loved about that is that oftentimes when we talk about personal transformation or we want to share a personal story, we like generalize it or we conceptualize it. Like, oh, I was going through a really tough time and then I had the support of people that I loved and you know, like now I'm on the other side of it. And that's like a really nice, digestible, democratic way of talking about a struggle or something that's important in your life, but it doesn't actually make me see your humanity. It doesn't actually show the blood on the page. And so I was like, Steph, like how do we today in our podcast, like really live that? Like how do we share what's really going on in our lives? And to, you know, the theme of this podcast is always, what can I find out about you that's not already on Google that I can't search and find on the internet? Yeah, I mean, perfectly said. I love that line. Tell me what I can't find out about you on Google. And full disclosure, there were some really exciting things that happened in the month of March and April. And, you know, you took the stage at Reform and I was on the stage at W North and together we were in Boston for the marathon. And I was like, come on, bro, let's riff on this. And you're like, but where's the blood on the table? <laughs> so the, the Coles notes, can you give me one highlight from Reform? Totally. So reform for those of you who are, are new to this conference that happens up in Squamish. It's a beautiful opportunity to gather people who are creative entrepreneurs. They're in the industry of creating tangible things or beautiful things with food, with craft, with electronic media. Like it's just a beautiful way for creative people to come together. And I helped close out the conference with a topic around metrics that matter. And the highlight for me was that at the end of the at the end of my talk, someone asked, you know, like, but how do I do this? Because it just seems so simple. Like what I just shared was so simple to that person that they wanted it to be hard or challenging. And what I shared was not only a response to her question, but I also called out like, we tend to want to make things hard for ourselves. When something's easy, we don't let it be easy. And so when we think about measuring the success of our business, we're looking for like, it has to be hard and serious and a big deal. And the reality is it can be very simple and it can be very easy and it can be effortless. And so that was like a big takeaway for me. We don't need to make things as hard as we tend to. We can make things easy. 
I love it. And a little bit of a flip side, I'd say, I spoke at W North about the power of creativity in leaders. And I led a panel and we were discussing that the reality is creativity doesn't feel easy to lots of leaders. And they might feel creative in certain elements or aspects of their lives, but Harvard Business Review made the bold declaration that creativity is the most sought after leadership quality. And I had three executives on stage who were riffing on their relationship and, and their experience with being creative themselves. And perhaps we should have all taken a page out of your book because if they knew that being creative could be easy, perhaps they would have had some different answers. And I think that leaders have such an expectation of themselves around creativity. Like it has to be the next earth shattering idea. It has to be super disruptive. It needs to be something that no one's ever thought of before. And we uphold creativity as this unattainable trait at times when really creativity can be a aspect of inspiration or a an element of what being inspired and looking at what other people are doing and remixing or remaking or thinking about how to solve a simple problem that hasn't been solved yet. And that's creativity as well. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we're even in this conversation constantly together. And one of the things that you're constantly teaching me is the ability to get over creative ideas. Nothing needs to be held on a pedestal. Create, generate, fail, create, generate, fly, create, generate, create, generate, keep going. Uh, and I think it's like, man, Seth Godin has really impacted both of us, but myself particularly in this domain, because he says, ship it, like ship the idea, go move on. Like it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be all figured out all the time. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a beautiful segue because I can tell you that, um, well, we both, we're together in Boston. We're going to do this quickly because we're going to get into the blood drops, but talk <laughs> about shipping it is you run the Boston Marathon and you need to ship this mindset from ship away the bad thoughts and get into the good thoughts mile after mile. And I even think of all of the logistics and the running around pre-race day and even on, on race day for you of I mean, to me, that's like the epitome of creative thinking, how to navigate the extreme security that is the Boston Marathon. Man, and it, so it had, Boston Marathon was the same weekend as the Sun Run here in Vancouver. And the Boston Marathon had 30,000 people running and so many people cheering. And so it's like navigating the Sun Run, trying to get through the city of Boston. Well, actually, what was the town called that Hopkins. you started? Hopkins. That one. <laughs> and trying to get through all of the closed roads and security guards, like it genuinely was the most logistical planning that I've ever done to cheer both you and Chad on. And we really, really, really freaking appreciated it. <laughs> all right, let's go to the bloodbath. I want to know the truth that was the past, that's the rear view mirror. Tell me what is on the horizon. What is big and juicy in the world of Matt Corker? Well, what's so crazy is over the last two years, Chad and I have been in conversations about starting a family. And it's one of the first things that I knew about Chad. He wanted to be a dad. It's one of the things that was the most attractive quality or one of the most attractive qualities about him when we first started dating. And we both come from really cool families. And so family to us albeit not perfect, was always so important and is a value that is upheld quite beautifully in, in, on both sides, I would say. 
And so the journey of talking about how to start a family and what would that look like, you know, one of the things that we looked at was, well, do we adopt? And we started talking to people about adoption and ruled out adoption pretty quickly for us. And the reason for that was right now in Canada, if you adopt, there's a two year period in which the biological parents or any kin related to the child would be able to come and take guardianship rights of the kid. So what that means is like we could adopt someone and the process to adopt is is lengthy and arduous in and of itself, go through that entire experience and then be raising the kid. And then 16 months in, a aunt, an uncle, a grandmother, or even one of the parents could come back and say, actually, we've our family situation has changed and we would like to take that kid back now. And it's a beautiful thing because you want any child to have the love and support of a family system that works and that is healthy. And when we were looking at that, it's like, it would totally gut us to be so invested and so selective and intentional with planning our family to then have that as a looming oversight. So we started going through the surrogacy route and holy cow, that's just like a crazy mother in and of itself. And what we have now through word of mouth, we were able to find our egg donor and it was a family friend that we were super grateful for. And the process was supposed to, the process of the egg donation was supposed to happen last fall. And man, talk about like mile after mile needing to shift your mindset. It's like, feels like milestone after milestone. Chad and I need to shift our mindset because we would find an egg donor and get really excited. And then there'd be a delay with the medical procedure procedure. And then we, there'd be a delay with the legal aspect of it. And then we would have vacations and travel time to navigate. And it was just like the process that was supposed to be a quick two month process was dragged out to maybe six or seven months. And now we're so happy to have had a successful egg donation. Um, we have what they call blastocysts, which is like a cluster of cells that are large enough and healthy enough that can now be frozen. And once inserted into a surrogate, they'll develop into an embryo. So we're at this like weird stage with some genetic material that isn't sperm and egg, and it's not an embryo, that, but it's like this cool little mid-between. And so it really feels like right now we're like in this mid-between stage. And the mid-between is the state, the recruiter in your sister is like, you are recruiting hard for surrogates or surrogate. Ideally, you would like to have two babies. And in the name of two babies is how do we implant these into a woman who is willing to carry? And with that, there are also parameters. What are some of the parameters of the surrogate that you're looking for? So Canadian, we're doing it in Canada to begin with, are looking at working with a Canadian uh, surrogate to start. And in Canada, you need to have already given birth before and ideally be done having your own kids. And the like creme de la creme, the unicorn is like ideally already been a surrogate before. So you have... You know what carrying a child is like. You loved that experience, but you don't want the responsibility of actually having another child. And you also have been through a process of working with a couple before. And, you know, man, besides just the recruiting aspect of like, yes, we're madly on the hunt for a surrogate because each step gets us closer to fulfilling our dream of being parents. And 
man, if you could see Chad with a little toddler on his arm, it's like, just breaks my heart into two. It's so adorable. And it's like, how do I make this part of his everyday experience? But it's like the medical and legal system is also geared probably 80% towards hetero couples. And so we're going into these medical screens and they're like, which one is the mother? And you're like, neither of us. And they have to like cross out forms. And you're like, right, this is like another example of how we're just, the system is still catching up to the legal environment. Like it's still legal, it's accepted. We face no discrimination from the people in our clinics, but man, the like medical forms are still like 1980s. (laughs) Yeah. What's really crazy is I was in university I want to say 16 years ago, maybe it was more like 18 years ago, and I looked into being a surrogate because my best friend had just come out. He was also one of my first loves, and he said he never wanted children, but I just thought that it would be like homage to my sweet best friend. And in my brain, I thought that if I was a surrogate and I had a baby every year, I was like, you're only pregnant for nine months. I take the summer off. I can just be pregnant through every school year. Like, wouldn't that be a great idea? And I was quickly talked out of it. And now hearing the process, I'm like, I can't imagine being 17 years old, pregnant at the University of Western Ontario, thinking that like this was possible or probable and fast forward and now it's real life and, you know, call it the medical system, call it Canada. You know, it is something that has been going on for two years for the two of you and you haven't been super open about talking about it and there've been delays and hangups and finding the right lawyers. And where does this leave you today, bro? How are you feeling about the process and yeah, real life? Well, I think that what Chad and I have really leaned on each other for, and I've also like requested from, you know, our immediate circle, like yourself, is it's easy to get excited. It's Mm. easy to like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And it's like, actually, this is like step one of a marathon. And we also need that excitement at mile 26. (laughs) So it's like the endurance, the support is so much different than just like the blatant excitement. Because mm. excitement fades, it's posted something on Instagram, and like people have probably already forgot about it today. And so it, it's like excitement is whatever's new and in front of us to give us a dopamine hit, and then it's on to the next. So, like, what we find is really valuable the true support that is needed in the like long haul. Long haul. Yeah. Well, you have an endurance family. We're in it for the long haul. Amen. And speaking of endurance, you have been enduring a pretty personal experience yourself. And so, like, what has been going on on the inside of Steph Corker's life? Yeah, the inside. It's exceptionally personal. And it's something that I haven't felt comfortable sharing. And, and to be honest, the reason is because I never wanted to have an excuse for poor performance. And so the last two years, undeniably, have been very tough athletically. I've chased lots of start lines and have had lots of finish lines that had me in piles of heaping tears. And, you know, it went from performing really well to not performing well. And race day was, of course, only a a quick glimpse into every day. Training was tough. There were lots of things, nutrition and digestion and lots of things have been really tough. And admittedly I was probably partially in denial and partially believing that you know I it would just go away 
And believing it would go away is not how you deal with this state. So I know I'm not alone in this. Uh, there are a lot of women that have very similar experiences. And in the name of leaving blood on the table, what I'm learning is the more I share, the more quickly I realize how many other women are in this same boat. But I have an inside full of fibroids. Most of the time, fibroids grow inside a woman's uterus. And mine are remarkably large and on the outside, which means they are taking up a lot of space on the inside of my, my just internal cavity, let's say. So much so that my ribs have properly popped out. And it would be fair, I mean, in the name of trying to create some levity in this. I have named the largest one Figgy, Figgy the fibroid. And Figgy has two brothers that grow alongside of her outside of my uterus and uh, approximately 10 that line my uterus and then I have a plethora inside. So I have a family of these little effers and the side effects are everything that you can read about on Google and it's terrible and painful and it's been awful. And I say all of this because I'm actually going for a rather invasive and large surgery on May 10th. And when you said, will you talk about this? I'm like, well, I guess the time is real. And it's part of why I wanted to run Boston. And it's part of why I'm chasing finish lines down to the last weekend before surgery, because there will be a Saturday morning that I wake up and I'm not able to go and run a marathon. And that's two weeks away. First off, holy cow, thanks for sharing and being so open about it. And then the second is like, what does it mean or what does it feel like to run a race or compete in a race when you know that this is also happening both on the inside, but also coming up, the surgery is coming up? Yeah, well, to be honest, racing has been very painful. So they... Figgy and Figgy's friends have a large blood supply. And so during several Ironmans, I have been in excruciating abdomen pain and I don't know how I've made it through. So my races haven't been fast and I've been really bummed, but somehow I finished and that alone feels like victory. I was actually very concerned that there could be some rupturing leading into the Boston Marathon and I made it through. So yeah, things are uncomfortable. I mean, it's kind of funny that you are looking to find a uterus because I feel like I've in some way been carrying (laughs) way too many things inside of me for two years. And I don't wish anyone to be pregnant for two straight years. Um, I don't know what this is like. And I actually feel like a rebirth on the other side of this. I don't remember what it's like to not have this kind of pain or these side effects. I can't imagine having a blood force, a life force all to myself that I'm not sharing with Figgy and friends. And it's also been exceptionally emotional and devastating. So the reality that surgery is coming feels a million different feels. And, you know, I wish I was here to tell you about my next 12 week build to Ironman. And this is the first time since I started this sport and the pursuit that I am like knocked out and out of the game and for real, you know, I'm going to, you know, we've set goals around running 10 kilometers again and that feels big and it will happen. And it's not that I'm not here to make whatever version of a corporate comeback I can make. I'm just mindful that with lots of emotions and lots of feels, I'm going to be down and out. 
Well, and what I would even offer is like, you know, when you say out of the game, what it really means is sometimes Steph Corker rides the Grand Fondo up to Whistler and sometimes she makes cookies and cheers people on. And it feels like, you know, this next period is just standing on the sideline to cheer people on because we all know she's going to be back on a bike and riding and running and swimming her little face off. I can't wait. I look at the calendar and count down and think how many weeks do I need to get back to an Ironman start line and how quickly will this happen? So I take all of your cheers and blessings and prayers. And if nothing else, I've just learned to never, ever take a start line for granted. Mm -hmm. And I know that there will be a Saturday morning. I'm waking up in the hospital wishing I was running a marathon. And I hope that if you're out running a marathon, you feel as lucky as ever. Amen. So hug your kids, run a race, go outside and appreciate the the beauty that is the spring that's coming up. Uh, Let's wrap up here. Steph, what's making your heart beat faster these days? Well, I'm not going to lie. I'm telling you that I'm going in for surgery. I just ran the Boston Marathon and I'm going to toe the line at the BMO Marathon next weekend because the recovery from Boston was so terrible. I think there's nothing better than heading straight into a hospital for surgery with blistered feet and aching quads and trash legs. So BMO, it was my first marathon. You and I ran it together and I'm gonna go toe the line. Can't wait. Amen. What's making my heart beat faster? New book club, new month, new book club book. It happens to be Grit by Angela Duckworth. So we are in (laughs) learning about resiliency and playing the long game. So yeah, that's what's making my heart beat faster. That is one of my most favorite books. You (laughs) are in for a good nerd. All right, high fives and big love.